0: We're going to dig in one more week on this capacity issue. And, uh, I'm, um, I'm thankful that God gives us the opportunity to do important things. Anybody else? There's something uh, I'm wired a little bit differently. Um, I'll just let you know, should I talk about seeing a counselor? I should probably talk about it. Um, I talk about it with him, so I I, I, I go see a counselor every couple of weeks. Anybody do preventative maintenance just to make sure you're not? Yeah, um, everything's fine, really. Um, no, I was talking to him the other day, and I was talking to him about this this thing in my life, in my head, about needing to do things, significant things. Like anybody else wired that way? Like it's just in like like you don't want to do little things. You want to do big things. And, um, and that can be good and bad. There's bad parts of that. But, uh, he said, he, he, he said something back to me about it. And I was like, clearly don't understand how I'm wired. Like, <laughs> like I can't just go in and clock in. I, that, that drives me crazy. Like I, there needs to be something significant to accomplish and so, um, here lately, I've been thinking about uh, life in terms of cycles, like five and seven-year cycles. Anybody ever thought about life in those terms, like in a cycle? Like, how much can I accomplish in the next five years or ten years? How much can I do in the next seven years? And I think about those cycles like that, because. Because you don't ever do anything tomorrow. It takes a while to prep for it and to think about it and to get ready for it and do the engineering and, and all the type of things to get it together and then you jump into it and then you've got the beginning of the process, right? And and then you got the middle where you're working it out, and then you got the culmination of it. And it takes it can take five to seven years for those things to like kind of do like this. And then I started thinking, I'm forty-seven years old, how many more cycles do I have? Have you ever thought about that? I was thinking about that this week. And I thought, if I stay here, if I'm on, if I'm on staff here at Hope Community Church, 40 years, there's a potential. I'll be 64 years old. You said, ah, it's still young. Maybe if you're 64, it sounds young. But for me, like I'm 47, I'm like, oh, I'll be 64. You know, I'll be 64 years old. Guess what? That's only 17 more years. So I started thinking about, I've only got like two two and a half cycles. We got to get with it. We got to do some important things. Amen. We're going to talk about that this morning, stewarding. Um, Now everybody in the room is going, oh dear God, like I got maybe a half a cycle left. What am I going to do? Listen, immediacy is your friend in life because we only get a limited amount of time, each of us. Listen, if you got young kids, I know you wake up every morning going, I don't know if I could do this, Lord. Listen, they'll be out of the house before you know it. You got maybe two or three cycles. Think about it like that. Like it happens so fast. And so we're called to be good stewards of what God has entrusted us during this really, really, short time together. Amen. So we're going to lean into that this morning. I'm going to let you know all the way up front. uh, This is not a bait and switch. We've been talking about this. If you're new here uh, this morning, um, we've been talking about this for a while. We do have an opportunity over the next year or so to be debt free in this church. Uh, That means a permanent location in Berkeley Springs, this building. So I told you I was, we were going to be talking about that more at the end of the service today. I think there's a card in the seat uh, pocket in the front front of you that'll say positioning for opportunity. Um, it, it is, uh, look, we just were in a really unique opportunity together as a church with three locations, starting a biblical counseling center and still the opportunity to be debt-free, uh, I believe by the end of next year. And so uh, we'll talk about that at the end, but we're gonna wrap up today with the story of a uh, Good and faithful servant. How about that? And um, and see if we can jam some good things into a couple cycles. Are you lo- are you willing to go along for the ride? Amen. We're going to read from Luke today. Luke's account of Jesus talking about this. Luke chapter twelve. We'll start in verse thirty-five. Matthew records this as well. It's the um, Olivet discourse. And I'll give you a little background on, on what Jesus is talking about in the context of, of this one parable. So why don't you stand to your feet in honor of reading the word. And we'll read from Matthew chapter 12, starting in verse 35. Say, amen, if you're ready, stay dressed for action and keep your lamps burning and be like men who are waiting for their master to come home from the wedding feast so that they may open the door to him at once when he comes and knocks. Blessed are those servants whom the master finds awake when he comes. Truly, I say to you, he will dress himself for service and have them recline at at his table, and he will come and serve them. If he comes in the second watch or in the third watch and finds them awake, blessed are those servants. But know this, that if the master of the house had known at what hour the thief was coming, he would not have let his house be broken into you also must be ready for the son of man is coming in an hour. You do not expect Peter said, Lord, are you telling this parable for us or for all? And the Lord said, who then is the faithful and wise servant whom his master will set over his household to give him, give them their portion of food at the proper time. Blessed is that servant whom his master will find doing so when he comes. Truly I say to you, he will set him over all his possessions. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming, and begins to beat the male and female servants to eat and drink and get drunk, the master of that servant will come in a day when he does not expect him, and in an hour he does not know, and will cut him in pieces and put him with the unfaithful. And that servant who knew his master's will but did not get ready or act according to his will will receive a severe beating. But the one who did not know and did what deserved a beating will receive a light beating. Everyone to whom much was given of him, much will be required. And from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning. God, we pray that we live ready. Lord, we wouldn't be shocked, but we'd be ready. Help us to live that way, Lord. Let your word change us today. In Jesus' name we pray and everyone said, amen. You may be seated. This account in Matthew is comprised in what we call the Olivet Discourse. There's five discourses in in Matthew, long sections of the teaching of Jesus. And this will be the last one. This will be the one nearest his death. And Jesus is dealing with the time before his ultimate return what it will look like, and the expectations for his followers. Matthew records Jesus describing what a faithful and wise servant looks like and compared to a wicked servant. If uh, The Olivet Discourse in Matthew uh, 24 has a lot of controversial things because Jesus is describing the last days, what we would call, and his imminent return. And the disciples are trying to get their heads wrapped around what this looks like and what this means, and Jesus is painting these graphic pictures of, of a time yet to be. He tells a lot of stories about how we should be living ready for that return, how it shouldn't become be a shock to us. And he's telling the disciples that are sitting in front of him into a larger crowd, hey, listen, here, here's story after story about how you should be prepared for my return. So Luke also records this this teaching of Jesus he tells a story of servants waiting for a master to return from a wedding feast. Now, now this is a little hard for us to understand sometimes because um, we typically don't have servants at the house opening the door for us. Is that true? Some of you are like, speak for yourself. I mean, that's fine if you do. We call them kids. Um, but we don't get that concept. But when I travel, you have to realize that most of the world outside of the United States has walls and gates around it. And that your property would have a wall around it and a gate. And there'd be somebody there to open the gate. And so I've been, I've been in Africa at times where you pull up to a, a building at 10 o'clock at night and you're just on the horn, on the horn, on the horn, on the horn. And I'm like, this dude on the other side of the gate's missing the rapture. He is not ready. (laughs) We're on the horn and nobody's coming to the gate. And so you get out, you knock on the gate, you yell over the gate. You're like, hey, we're here. And then sometimes you realize you pulled up to the wrong gate. (laughs) It's a whole nother sermon. But the importance of of, of being ready for the return of the master. Imagine, imagine your job being to be up ready for the gate to be opened. And then when the master comes home at his will, by the way, he's the one paying you to stand at the gate. So if he returns the first, the watch, second watch, third watch, that doesn't matter. We're getting paid to stand at the gate. And, and Jesus tells a story in Luke chapter 12. Hey, when he comes and rings the door, you open up the gate. You stay awake. That's what your calling is, to be prepared. So Peter, inquisitive as to, we're with you. Who are you talking to? They're not understanding the whole idea of him ascending into heaven yet. He hasn't even been crucified. And so they, they haven't got their heads wrapped around. By the way, I think we should give them a break. 2,000 years later, we are still get our heads wrapped around being ready. Amen? So I think we should give them a little bit of a break. He hasn't been crucified yet. He hasn't risen from the dead yet. They don't even know. They don't even understand the, the, the ramifications of all this happening. And so he's telling them a story based on all of that stuff having previously happened and how they should be ready to expect his return. And yet none of it's happened yet. And he's saying, I need you to be ready, ready for me to return. And and Peter's like, are you talking to us or the rest? Because we're with you. And Jesus in his typical fashion didn't say, yes, Peter, I'm talking to you. He said, this is what it looks like. Wise and faithful servant. This is what it looks like. He takes what he's given. He distributes it to who he was supposed to distribute it to. He's resourceful. He's doing all the right things. And he's prepared when the master returns. And then he flips the coin and says, this is what the wicked servant looks like. He doesn't do anything he's told. He doesn't take care of everyone else. And by the way, misappropriation of funds. He He's selfish eats like a glutton and drinks like a drunkard. And when the master returns, did you hear, did you, when I read that, did you hear the description of that? Now, I think, I think one of the mistakes to make when you're reading these parables is sometimes we assign, um, we assign Jesus as the master every time and us as the servants. And, and you're like, Oh, he's going to lop you into a million pieces. Okay. Listen, the punishment that was dished out for that, Peter and them were not gasping as much as what we are today. The master stayed gone a long time and and it was, listen, in that culture, they weren't going, now you should be ashamed of yourself. It was different. Jesus is telling the parable to say, you have to live ready, Peter. You have to live ready. And those that aren't ready are going to miss it. And yes, there is a punishment for missing it. There is a punishment for not having a saving faith. Amen? Okay. All right. So let's take this apart a little bit. Jesus tells a story. You've got to be ready. It's like the master coming home from a wedding feast. You've got to be ready to open the door. If you open the door, there's good things. Peter says, are you talking about us? Or are you talking about them? And he says, here's another story. And he tells this story about the good and faithful wise servant and a bad servant. I need you to understand how resources are talked about in the New Testament. Resources in the New Testament are always talked about in the sense of us stewarding what we were given. Are you following me? So it's always talked about, here is what you have been given, what are you doing, and what return have you produced with what you have been given. And so there's an acknowledgement, like we talked about last week, that what we've been given has come from him, and now there's a responsibility to what we have been given. And no part of any of these parables does it make us the master. But the irony is in American culture, that's all what we're trying to achieve. We're all trying to achieve where, where we're masters of our own domain. And and, we, and we're, we're like pushing all the buttons like, oh man, I'm doing this one over here. I'm doing this one over here. Everybody answers me over here. Yeah, this is what happened. And that's like the American dream. Biblically, in the New Testament, it's painted a different way. That what when we realize everything we receive through the work of our hands, through inheritance, through the really how do I don't want to say it? Rare tax refund, um, all those things that it's actually God who blesses us with that. Amen? Okay. And last week we talked about the five stages, about how it's, what am I gonna do with my stuff? And then then we move all the way to what would God have me keep and what would he want me to do with the rest? That was the level five stage. And I heard a lot of feedback from last week, like, man, I'd never thought about it that way. That we just take a step to the next thing and a step to the next thing. Okay, what... What Jesus is talking about here is a level five type of living. Jesus is talking about there was a servant who was over the master's stuff. It wasn't his. Look at your neighbor and say it wasn't his. But he was given explicit directions on how to handle it and what to do with it. He was given direction about, hey, this is what I'm leaving you. And this is what I want you to do with it. I want you to take care of everybody else that is employed by me. I want you to. Feed them when they're supposed to be fed. I want you to take, make sure they have everything. And this is what I want you to do with it. And guess what? There was enough for him to eat. That's good. Yeah, there was enough there for everything to happen. And he said that the master was going to be gone. And when he came back, he wanted to find that. And a good, wise, faithful servant would be doing that when he returned. So, you know what, um... You know what a common theme with all of these parables in the New Testament is? Is there's, there's enough resources. Look at your neighbor and say, there's enough resources. Tell him There's enough resources. The thing that we struggle with is, um, it, can I be honest with you? I struggle with it as well. At times. A lot of times. Because... What we end up thinking about is, Lord, it doesn't seem like there's enough resources to do what you want me to do and what I want to do. Anybody else? Anybody else? That's the hang up, isn't it? Lord, I know you said there's enough resources, but when I add up the new car, there's a little bit of tension here. When I add up this and when I add up that, when I add up the things that I want to do and i put them with the good, I mean the good things that you want, Lord. I'm not arguing they're not good. But there's all this stuff over here. And it's really good. There seems like there's not enough. Does that make sense? What we find out, the common theme in all of these parables, whether it's the parable of the talents, the parable of the... Um, the parable of the uh, the rich young ruler, the parable of the the, uh, rich fool, all of them, there was enough. Look at your neighbor and say, there's enough. There was more than enough on most occasions. More than enough on most occasions. So Jesus is not telling stories of, hey, disciples, listen, you're barely gonna make it and and you're gonna have to just consolidate everything you have to accomplish this one little teeny thing I've asked you to do before before I come back. No, 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 read read Acts chapter two. It says there was more than enough in the community to make sure the community was taken care of. After after Peter preaches the, the, on the day of Pentecost and 3,000 people get saved, it says they were had all things in common and they came in, there's people selling some things and giving to others and there's people that were in need and getting. I'm not saying we start a commune. Don't <laughs> misunderstand me. But I'm saying in the community, there was always enough in the community of faith. There was always enough. Matter of fact, you go all the way to Second Corinthians, Paul, Paul would double down on that. And he would say things like, when you have a lot, there's somebody else who doesn't. And then when you don't have a lot, there's somebody else who does. And in the community of faith, that's how we make things happen. Does that make sense? Okay. So what we have to understand right off the jump is there was enough resources. So that wasn't the question. The issue was whether we were going to be faithful with enough. The issue the master had with the unfaithful servant was not as that he didn't have enough, but it was a misappropriation of what he was given. In the parable, Jesus uh, taught about stewarding the re, these resources. There, there was never an indication in any of those parables that he didn't give them enough. When you look at the parable of the talents, the, the guy who had one and buried it never said, you didn't give me enough. He said, I was afraid of you. That's a totally different scenario. He said, I would mishandle it because of my view of you. And that's what we talked about last week. Your theology starts to determine how you handle resources. So it wasn't an issue of whether he had given him enough. He had given him plenty. It was how was he going to handle the resources? The parable of the rich fool, there was more than enough. More than even could be used. In the parable of the rich young man, there was more than enough. So our perception of what we have been given can determine how we use it. So so this is why I don't believe in a prosperity gospel, but I also don't believe in a poverty gospel. And this is why, if you walk around all the time talking about you don't have enough, you will be stingy with what you have. I'm sorry. I I know poor people who are stingy too. I, it's easy to call rich people stingy, isn't it? It's to be like, look at everything they've got, and that's true. But I've also seen poor people hoard up things in a mentality. I'm like, oh, I can't let it go. can't let it go. I might not get any tomorrow. I just, I just, I just. In the parable, the parables that Jesus taught said, hey, there's enough. There's enough. Let me teach you how to handle it. That's why we talked a whole whole sermon on on debt. That's why we're starting um, uh, the Dave Ramsey thing with the Rodriguez's. Because we believe there is enough, but a lot of Americans aren't handling it well, even in the church. So we have to get in our head, he has given us enough. Say it out loud again, he's given me enough. He's given me enough. Okay. So if he's given us enough, now we have to talk about the expectations. Now we have to talk about where the expectations clear? Are we, do we understand? Is there a mandate on what to do with enough? Is there a, is there an outline on what to do with enough? And I read a blog post this week that had this quote in it. Stewardship is not about giving back to God. It's about using what he has given us to accomplish something that matters. Now this is so important. How many of you are raised in a church? Uh, that talked about tithing all the time, like tithing. Okay, can we have another little conversation about that? I believe in tithing. I think it's a great idea. My wife and I, I've told you before, we, we consider that minimum operating requirements. That's just the way I think about it. Like this is what those dudes did in the Old Testament before they even knew Jesus existed. And so I can at least do that. So the Old Testament talks about tithing, but the New Testament doesn't do away with it. The New Testament doesn't say stop tithing. It says now we look at it, not as just giving back to the Lord, but now we're stewards of what he's left us with. Amen? So now that's a totally different concept in my head. I'm not doing the, oh Lord, thank you for all this, and here's 10% back to you. Now don't spend all that in one place, Jesus. But we get that mindset. Oh, now I've given him out of what he has given me, the 10%, and now I'm, now I'm clear to do with what I want. The trouble is, all of the parables in the New Testament hold us to a higher standard than 10%. Did you hear me? All of these parables in the New Testament hold us to a higher standard of 10%. What are you doing with what he has left you with? So it's not about just us going, oh, he's been so faithful to me, so I kicked him back 10%. That sounds like a real estate deal. It's not that. It's look at all he has entrusted me with, and I only get so many more cycles to do something important. I only get so much more time with what he's given me to make something out of it. I only get so much more time with what he's left me with to do something that honors his name. And so Jesus told story after story after story. When the master returned, hey, what'd you do with it? Hey, I took five, turned it into 10. Well done, good and faithful servant. Hey, what'd you do with it? I took this, turned it into this. I took this, I did this. This is what I did with it. This is what I did with it. And and, and the master's going, good, you got it. You understood that I was coming back and there was an expectation of a return when I came back. And this story in Luke chapter 12 is no different. I left you with all my resources, including people and finances. And I gave you responsibility and I told you I was going to be gone. And when I decided to come back, how'd you handle it? Did everybody quit? Did you beat everybody? Did you drink all the liquor? It wasn't liquor, it was wine. But anyway, how did you handle it? And there's two scenarios there. One, yes, all the expectations were met and I handled it the way you told me to and I even handled the difficult people well. And I fed them just like I did the other people that I like and I took care of people and I didn't make this exclusive and I did what you asked me to do. And then the other one, the other one, oh man, there's something about this other one that we have to... Um, do we have to deal with for a second? Because the mistreatment of people, that's what the second guy did. The mistreatment of people and then the misappropriation of funds. Let's call it that. Wait, this sounds like politics. Mistreatment of people, and the misappropriation of funds. Here's what, here's what happens. He starts mistreating all the master servants that don't work for him, work for the master. He's just been put over top. And then he starts eating like a glutton. All you see, he starts pulling all the resources towards him and he starts getting drunk. He's pulling all the resources towards him. And there is one explicit reason why he's doing it. The master's been gone a long time. And he doesn't believe he's coming back. Ah. You know why this stings? Because the modern day American church is living like he's not coming back. We're going, Lord, I need more. I need more. We're not asking more of him. We're asking for more of what he can give us. Hey, just, just ship it to me. You don't have to come back. Matter of fact, we'd rather you not come back because when you come back, all hell's going to break loose. So we kind of like this thing we got going on here where we show up and we comfort each other. We kind of like this thing that we're going on here. We feel good about ourselves. We kind of like it the way it is. We're getting what we want and it feels good. And we don't want, stop talking about this tribulation. Stop talking about this second coming. It just feels weird because we're We're good. One of the things i 'm starting to realize as well is without without a keen awareness that the master's coming back, every person in the room is susceptible to mishandling things. This is not a circumstance. Can I tell you a little story real quick I remember uh, we didn 't move to West Virginia when I was eight, but we came up here and visited and I remember my grandmother 's Sister, I think it was my grandmother's sister. She ran a daycare center, pre-K thing. This is way back, man, in the seventies. So I remember we came up here and something was going on. I don't, I don't remember exactly all the details, but this was traumatic for me. Um, whew, I'll be okay. We, we, I get put in this classroom for a day because we were visiting, something was going on and I get put in this classroom for a day. And I remember the teacher in this classroom left, went out of the classroom and she appointed two rats. I mean, kids to, um, to tell if any of the other kids were, were, were talking, I'll never forget it. And she came back and I remember looking at him, I'm, I'm thinking like five years old, like is this prison? And she said, "Was there anybody talking?" And the kid just started pointing out people. And she whacked the kid with a ruler. And I was like, "This is nuts." This was in the late seventies, okay? I think late seventies, maybe nineteen eighty, eighty-one, something like that. And I remember thinking, I remember two feelings: I'll never talk again, and I want to beat that kid up the tone on everybody. All right. I can assure you everyone in that preschool thought the teacher was coming back next time. If she says she's coming back, she's coming back. And somebody's getting whipped. So every kid in that room, the next time she left was like. All right. 2,000 years later. And we're going on we, what, we, what we would call faith, but faith void of his return. We have faith for things that we think we need, healing, deliverance from addiction. These are all good things. Faith for finances. We have, Lord, oh Lord, I, need, I just need you to do that. I need you to do this. When is the last time we actually said, Lord, I'm gonna operate this year in a way that would anticipate your return. You can't pull this parable out of the context of Jesus' teaching on his return. If you do that, you miss the whole point. If you do that and you just say, look, you need to be good stewards of God's stuff and it's like, we'll all feel better about it and he'll give you more, he'll give you more if you're a good steward. No, if you pull it out of the context of Jesus saying, I'm coming back then you miss the whole point. You miss the point that I talked about all the way at the beginning. How many more cycles do we have? How many more cycles do we have? I don't know. I got maybe two and a half left here. That That means two and a half left. I don't know if Jesus is coming back and I don't plan on dying at 64. But then I didn't do enough to prepare the next generation if he would wait to expect him to return. Somebody has to be standing at the gate ready to open it up. Somebody has to be doing important things. If this generation, if the, if you can look around and look at each other in the room, if us, if while we're here, if we don't, if we don't do the important things, if we're found not ready for his return, it's about faith. It all requires faith. But if that servant says to himself, my master is delayed in coming and begins to beat the male and female servants and to eat and drink and get drunk. Now, not anybody's in here beating anybody up. Pray to God you're not beating anybody up. To eat and drink, get drunk, the master of that servant will come on a day when he does not expect. It requires faith to serve while the master is gone. It requires faith to serve while he's gone. As soon as we let the idea that he is not coming creep into our mindset, we're susceptible to mishandling people and things. If you knew Jesus was coming tomorrow, you would go into work differently. You may call in sick. Don't do that. Go to work. But you'd have a different mindset, wouldn't you? This is my last chance. I better be nice. This is my last chance. I better show what grace looks like. This is my last chance. 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 Jesus is telling the story to the disciples and going, Hey, listen, you live every day like he's coming back, like I'm coming back. You live every day. Not as a wait, like I hope I don't get caught. He's not going to smack us with a ruler. No, but I hope I get caught. I hope I get caught doing the right thing. I hope if he shows up tomorrow, it will catch me doing the right thing. How do we get there? Because I have faith that he's coming. Immediacy affects our thinking. Why wait until the end to clean things up? Why wait until the end to clean things up? Look at your neighbor and say, if you can change it now, why wouldn't you change it? That's a whole story of leadership. That's the whole story of making a company work. That's a whole story of making a church work. Uh, somebody else comes in from the outside and says, you've got to make this change, this change, this change. Well, it's so hard. And then the leadership leaves and the next people come in and they would do what? They make the changes. And the company takes off and the church takes off. He say, well, why wouldn't that person do it? I don't know. They didn't believe the end was near. They didn't believe the end was near. Your marriage, why wouldn't you make the change now? With your kids, why wouldn't you make the change now? Because we don't believe in immediacy. We don't believe. We believe it's five years from now. We believe it's 20 years from now. We believe it's the next generation. We're always pushing it down. We're always kicking the can down the road. And we've gotten really good at it. And Jesus is saying, listen, Peter, I'm talking. I want you to understand that it's your responsibility. You can't kick the can. Then when I come back, I want to find people who are doing what I asked them to do, who are handling the resources the way I asked them to handle it. So James chapter two, verse 14 through 17, the band's going to come up. It says, James is the faith and works guy. Now, James is not work and Jesus will save you. James is you have faith. Show it to me. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled. (laughs) Doesn't that sound awesome? Let me let let you know how that sounds. Watch this. Um, Somebody comes up to you and they say, hey man, I'm struggling. I'm struggling. And this is what's going on, this is what's going on, this is what's going on. And we go, I'm praying for you. I'm praying for you. Go in peace. I'm praying for you. Go in peace. James says, "Why well, would you let him walk away? He literally says that. If a brother or sister is poorly clothed, lacking daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warm and filled without giving them the things needed for the body. What good, what Good is that. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. What James is saying, he's saying, listen, the saving faith you say you have should be producing something in your life. Because that same saving faith should be expecting the return of Jesus. And so all of a sudden we go, okay, I don't know how long he's waiting. In the old church we say, if the Lord tarries. something you remember that? Mm-mm. If the Lord tarries, what did we mean? We didn't mean 2,000 more years. I remember as a kid being with 80-year-olds in the church, and they're like, Chris, if the Lord tarries, I'm like, till when? Next week? They believed he was coming. And when you heard them pray, it sounded like he was coming tomorrow. And I remember as a kid thinking, boy, I better get my stuff together. All of a sudden I start thinking about Lord does my faith, does what I do show evidence of a faith in me it's the way I steward people and things in my life prove that you've saved me all the stewards in Jesus' stories they all had concrete knowledge of the Master. The difference was if they had faith that he would return or not. So the question is, what will we do together? What will you do individually? What will we do together? Are we operating as a church as if the master is returning? It's common for churches to have divisiveness, all kinds of things like that going on. Or is there unity here? Is there covetousness or Generosity. Are we making disciples or making people feel good? Are we operating like we believe he's coming back? As a family, are we encouraging our spouses to honor God? Are we raising our children in the admonition of the Lord? Are we making disciples of the people that are the closest to us? As individuals, are we considering daily the call of God on our lives? gifting he has entrusted us with and the return that he has yes indeed asked for now you can look at this two ways you can look at this as just sitting in class waiting on the teacher to come back and whack you with a ruler and I I would I would I would say that's a wrong way to look at it or you could say I can't wait Till he comes back and finds me. I can't wait till he comes back and finds me. He's got enough grace for where you screwed up. But I can't wait for him to come back and find me doing something good. I can't wait for him to come back and find us as a church partnering together to do good things. I can't wait for him to come back and find a church in unity. I can't wait for him to come back and find a church that's the church that's helping people in need. I can't wait for him to come back and find find us counseling people who are in difficult places. I can't wait for him to come back and find us starting more churches. I can't wait for him to come back and find you doubling whatever he gave you. I can't wait for him to come back and find you at your work, faithful day after day. I can't wait for him to come back and find you leading your home well. I can't wait for him to come back and find you teaching your children. I can't wait for him to come back and find you. So, listen to me. Stand to your feet. We're going to end with this. This is the exact opposite of the Garden of Eden, where when Adam and Eve sinned, God said, Adam, where are you? We don't want to be called naked, we don't want to be called doing what He asks us to do. So, my prayer is in this church in your work in your life in your family that we would get a sense of the immediacy I only got so many more cycles I only got so many more chances and we could do something great together you God could do something unbelievable through you if you put your mind to he is coming back and I only get this window and I will be found faithful period period I'm going to be found faithful. I'm going to be found forgiven and faithful. There's the two things you got to worry about. Forgiven and faithful. And I'm going to pray that over you today. Listen, you can, you don't have to, I don't want you to make this decision. Now there's a card. There's a, there'll be a QR code on the, on the ceiling or on the wall. Listen, we have an opportunity to be debt-free by this time next year. And I don't know, sky's the limit about what the potential is with this church all over the place, not just here, but all over the place. And so all I'm asking you to do is consider what what part you'd play in it. Beth and I are gonna lean into this thing in a big way for us. The staff will be leaning in, the board will be leaning in. And I believe as a community in Berkeley Springs and Concord, New Hampshire, as a community, we come together and we decide that as a church, as a whole church, that we're going to lean in and do something important for however many cycles we have left on this planet. And so you can scan that QR code. There's a card in the seat pocket in front of you. You just say, hey, I'm going to give one time or I'm going to give over a series of 12 months or whatever that's going to look like. Don't, you don't have to write it down today unless you've been praying about it. If you don't know, bring it up to me and I'll write the number in for you. But we don't talk about this stuff a lot. But it is an important thing for us to do together. Amen? There's stuff I do by myself. There's stuff I do by my, with my wife and kids. And there's stuff I do with the church. Amen? And we can partner together and see unbelievable things happen in the future. I want to pray that over you. I want us to live every day like he's coming. Amen? Father, we thank you. God, we thank you that Jesus told he was he was coming back and he indeed is coming back. And we've got every resource we need. We've got every opportunity in front of us to be found faithful when he returns. There is no excuse. And so Lord, as a group of people today who proclaim faith in you, we pray that you'd give us the opportunity to be found faithful, Lord. Lord, don't just give it to us. Lord, let us have the faith to take advantage of it right now. In every area of our life, Lord, we pray for the faith to take advantage of the opportunities you put in front of us. Lord, we thank you for it. Let us be found faithful when you return. In Jesus' mighty name, we pray. Church, thank you up front. Hey, listen, I'm praying a blessing over you this week. Be found faithful this week. One day at a time, be found faithful. We'll see you back here next week.